This episode of The Fern Line is brought to you by The Hoarding Marmot, Anchorage's finest outdoor consignment shop, located in the heart of Spinard. The Hoarding Marmot has everything you need to get going on your next outdoor adventure, whether you're hiking, climbing, pack rafting, skiing, or more. The Hoarding Marmot also has a fine selection of maps, guidebooks, yummy trail snacks, and other odds and ends to fill out your kit, plus great prices to fit any budget. Make sure and stop by the Hoarding Marmot next time you roll through town, or check them out online at hoardingmarmot.com. This episode of The Fernline is also presented by the Alaska Rock Gym, providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995. Alaska Rock Gym is a great place to keep your forearms strong and your mind centered any time of year. With over 20,000 square feet of climbing, an entire floor of boulder terrain, beautiful locker rooms, plus expanded cardio fitness and yoga rooms, Alaska Rock Gym truly has something for everyone. The gym is also working hard to prioritize your health and safety in this time of COVID-19. So to learn more, you can stop by any time to take a tour of the facility or check them out online at alaskarockgym.com. All right, let's get to the show. Hey, everyone, just want to give you a heads up. This episode contains some spicy language, but more importantly, it dives directly into a very real and very personal experience with grief. So I just want to give you a heads up. All right. It was March 17th, 2020, and August Franzen was spending the morning with the love of his life, Callie Ann Rittman. The young couple, freshly graduated from college, had just moved to the small port city of Valdez, Alaska, where they planned to build a life together. Surrounded by Prince William Sound and the lofty, glaciated Chugach Mountains, Valdez offered the couple a dream existence, a small-town vibe with extraordinary scenery, a tight-knit and loyal climbing community, and of course, some of the best ice climbing in North America. In fact, August had made plans the night before to go climbing with Ryan Sims, one of Valdez's new generation of elite ice climbers. Their plan? to attempt an insidious, unclimbed pillar they'd recently spotted. Callie, on the other hand, made arrangements to go attempt a new route with Brian Teal, a Valdez wise man and one of the most accomplished ice climbers in Alaskan history. By all accounts, it was going to be a great day. We were packing all of our gear. Callie and I had our morning coffee, and and then Brian came to the door and... uh, she was running late, a little bit late as usual, and uh, we just said like a very quick, all right, goodbye, good luck, I love you, um, see you tonight. August and Ryan headed out as well, driving the winding road out of Valdez into the iconic Keystone Canyon. But from the get-go, something didn't feel right. And I will never forget as Ryan and I were driving past Keystone Canyon, we just looked at each other and said, you know, man, like, I don't, I don't know what it is, but this is not the day. Like, I, I'm not feeling it. Being the experienced climbers they were, they decided to listen to their guts, foregoing the unclimbed pillar for a day of pulling down on safe but technical mixed lines. So we, we spent the whole day just dry tooling, pulling hard on, like, bolted mixed lines, and, uh, as Ryan and I were driving back into town, um, 
Ryan is a firefighter for the city of Valdez. So he has like one of those, you know, CV radios. And there was a radio call that said there was a fatality or like a, a rescue. August immediately thought back to his gut feeling from earlier in the day. But for some reason, he pushed it aside. You know, I just tried to push it to the back of my mind. And uh, then Ryan and I went back to his house. We had some, some scotch. Him and I were just, you know, just like a day, a day after climbing, um, you know, just celebrating, you know, all the pitches we got in and talking about future plans. And we were, uh, we were waiting for Callie to show up to have dinner. And then we got this phone call. Ryan's wife, Lydia, picked up the call and put it on speaker. It was a frantic Brian on the other end of the line. I will never forget him just sounding so, like you could just hear the panic and just exhaustion in his voice. And he just said, like, there's been an accident. There's been a terrible fucking accident. For August, the world stopped spinning. Time stood still. A buzzy wave of shock overtook him, where the feelings of physical, mental, and psychological pain met at once. You know, at this point, you know, starting to connect the dots and thinking like, God, please, no, not Callie. And then, like a thief in the night, he heard the unmistakable words out of Brian's mouth. Callie was dead. I can't even articulate how I felt after that. I mean... Hearing those words, it was just being like stabbed in the fucking guts. First there was disbelief, then there was denial, and then everything just fell apart. I was, you know, thinking like, what, what do you mean she's dead? Like I, I had coffee with her this morning. It, like Callie knows her shit. She knows what she's doing out there. This, this isn't right. And I just remembered everything just slamming me at once and just not being able to really comprehend or believe what had happened until the Valdez Police Department walked through the door and and they told me that Callie was just declared dead and if I wanted to see her this you know this was my chance in a state of shock August Ryan and Lydia met up with Brian and together they embarked on a surreal walk to the hospital it was late at night, it was snowing. I, I still was trying to cling on to some hope that there's been, you know, like some terrible fucking mistake and, you know, maybe she's just like really badly injured and just hoping with everything that that was the case. And uh, th this was when COVID had first came to Alaska and um, because of, you know, COVID things, uh, we, we couldn't even like step inside of the the room to see her like we had to wait outside in in this you know in the entryway and then they pushed Callie out on a stretcher right in front of me and that just like I I just I spent so long just sobbing over her her cold pale body and just you know just sobbing thinking like fuck like why you know why is this her in the blink of an eye the world August had known, the life he had planned to live with the love of his life, it was gone. Yeah, we only had a little bit to, to be there and for me to say goodbye till they pulled her back. 
and that, you know, man, yeah, it was pretty fucking traumatic. And, uh, and then from there that set off these, you know, these next six months. Death can be one of the cruelest parts of living. It's something that each and every one of us must face at some point in time. Whether it's losing a parent or a friend, coming to terms with death in some ways is a rite of passage. But when you're in your 20s, when the world is literally at your feet, when you're young, vibrant, healthy, and in love, that's when death hits the hardest. Because it's unexpected, it's not supposed to happen that way. For August, the weeks after Callie's passing was a blurry patchwork of merging realities. On the one side, there was grief surrounded by friends, family, and loved ones. One of the people August reached out to was his friend, employer, and mentor, Harry Kent. He's the owner of Kent Mountain Adventure Center, my boss, and has been with me through the shits. And um, the morning after Callie died, Harry told me no matter how horrible this is, no matter how difficult it is to sob over Callie's body and to, you know, just live this terrible nightmare, you have to feel this. Like you have to, I think his exact words were, let August be August. If you need to, just scream at the mountains and cry and don't hold back. Be here and feel this moment and go right through the fucking guts of it. Because there's no other way. But on the other side of that grief was desperate loneliness, isolation, and the seductive pull of self-destruction. I was depressed. I was a just an absolute mess. I was, you know, like drinking whiskey straight for breakfast and... You know, like a week after Callie died, I went out and I soloed this peak in Mineral Creek and I got to, I found myself in a spot where it was real climbing with, you know, and I, I was just so emotionally driven and just so like, so wound up and I wasn't able to rationally think. And there were a couple moments where the climbing got a little too real and I just had to stop and think like, man, this is, um, you shouldn't be here. You should not be here right now. So in the midst of that self-destruction, in that moment of unrelenting pain, August thought about hanging up the ropes. Maybe climbing just wasn't worth it. But as time went on, and August continued to process what happened, to grieve for Callie, a newfound clarity started to emerge. It just made me think, you know, like these are you know, like climbing and adventure, the mountains, like these are, these were the moments that Callie and I lived for. If Callie was still here and she knew that I stopped climbing, that would just crush her. Cause she knew that climbing is like that, that is a part of me, that, that was a part of us. And with it, we still have all these dreams. And I, I say our, because they are still Callie and, and my dreams. You know, and even though Callie isn't physically here and things are so different, I can still go to Chamonix. I can still climb Mount Huntington with her. I can still climb the world. And even though she isn't physically a part of it, that is still our dream. And that's her legacy that I can still 
still carry and still honor her in that way. And that is like such a, it, it just makes me feel like I have to keep living my life, but now I've got to, you know, now I've got to climb and I have to live the life for two people instead of just myself. The cold, dark winter turned to spring, and the ever-warming spring turned to summer. August returned to Colorado and spent the season working for Harry at the Kent Mountain Adventure Center. Of course, there were times when the loneliness crept in, where the pull of self-destruction seeped into the cracks. But despite these setbacks, August moved forward, and he climbed. By the time his guiding season was over, the mountains were calling. So August started hatching plans with his friend and climbing partner, Simon. Simon and I had intentions of flying into the Ruth Gorge for two weeks. And, you know, I, last year, like, we did the same thing. We, we attempted the Cobra Pillar, the Eye Tooth, um, the Goldfinger Rooster Comb. And we just got shut down on everything due to, like, foul weather, bad conditions, all sorts of things. So we ran through all these potential thoughts. We thought about flying to the Kachatnas, to the Brooks Range, to, um, to the Mendenhall Towers. And we like checked all the weather for each and ev like it just was garbage everywhere. As a kid growing up on a small farm in Iowa, August spent a lot of nights camping out in the fields with his dog, dreaming of faraway adventures and immersing himself in books like Endurance, Call of the Wild, and Desert Solitaire. It was also during this time that he read about a fabled mountain splitting the border of Alaska and British Columbia called the Devil's Thumb. I first read about the Devil's Thumb when I was in high school. I read Iger Dreams by, by John Krakauer and his account of you know, this solo expedition into the heart of the Stikine ice field with his eyes set on the devil's thumb. And just that, that story has just always captivated me. Um, I didn't know too much about it, but I just threw it out there and said, dude, what if we looked at the devil's thumb? What if we flew to the Stikine? The duo checked the weather forecast and to their astonishment, it looked to be splitter for the next week. In that instant, they committed to the expedition. So we didn't even, you know, we didn't even think, we didn't do our homework, we just bought tickets. We're doing this, we're going. And then I started to do research. Sometimes it's fun and exciting to be impulsive, to follow your instincts and go with the flow. But the Devil's Thumb is no ordinary mountain. In fact, it's a mythical mountain surrounded by sinister glaciers and a reputation for atrocious weather. It's also extremely dangerous. One account August read gave a grim analysis, stating, quote, Truly, this is not a peak to be taken lightly. A detailed analysis of fatalities per summit attempt would undoubtedly reveal this peak to be the deadliest on the continent. Of course, after like Callie's accident, just reading that was like, just made me think like, fuck, what, what did I just sign up for? Um, but we're doing it. We have tickets, uh, we have weather. Let's, you know, let's see what we can do. So in the second week of September, August and Simon flew to Petersburg, where they planned to charter a helicopter to the base of the Devil's Thumb. 
But when they called the pilot to inform him of their plans, well, he simply refused, saying it was just too dangerous. Luckily, during a follow-up call, they did convince the pilot to drop them off 4,000 feet below the peak, right smack dab in the middle of a bent and broken glacier known as the Witch's Cauldron. From there, they would have to shoulder back-breaking loads through the torturous icefall to the base of the Devil's Thumb. It was on. On September 11th, they flew in. We got dropped off at the base of the, at the head of the Witch's Cauldron. And between us, where we got dropped off, and the base of the mountain, there was over 4,000 feet of just this wicked icefall, just sinister, you know, seracs and ice fins and all this like compressed, tortured ice that we had to pick our way through with these like, I mean, like stupid heavy packs, you know, with like weeks of food and, you know, gear for, you know, like rock climbing and uh, expedition camping and fuel and all that stuff. Over the next day and a half, straining under the brutal loads, they finally made it to base camp. It was everything August had imagined and more. Our base camp was just phenomenal and uh, and the weather was perfect. Like that's just so, so wild. With the weather holding beautifully, the team set up their camp, ate some food and settled in to a fitful sleep. And the following day, we, uh, we woke up at 3 a.m. And we were probably, it probably took us like an hour to eat like, you know, like a really shitty meal of like instant coffee and granola and rack up. And, and we just started moving right out of camp. We, uh, we climbed the, the classic Becky East Ridge. August and Simon moved fast up to a feature called the Hog's Back. From there, they settled into a consistent pace simul climbing and picking their way up the ridge. Initially, it was steep snow into like moderate mixed climbing onto uh, to hit a notch on the ridge. And then from there, we just linked up all these gendarmes and these towers and pinnacles, you know, just like moving along this endless spine of granite out in one of the most remote ranges in North America. It wasn't the most difficult climbing, that either of us have done, but the exposure and the quality was just wild. Having the, like the unclimbed northwest face of the Devil's Thumb just plummet 7,000 feet below my crampons and hanging on this knife edge ridge that just cuts Alaska and British Columbia, very much recognizing and aware of, of how lucky we were, like the whole, climb like i mean thought of how few people have have laid eyes on this mountain on these mountains but even you know like even fewer people have climbed it even you know touched it let alone like made it to the summit and it was only a matter of time until they did make it to the summit they hung out took some photos and congratulated each other all the while being in awe of their surroundings before long, they started down, and although it wasn't an epic, the descent certainly had its challenges. I think there, there's some beta saying uh, there's only two, like, full 60-meter rappels to get down to the hog's back. That's bullshit. We had to do, like, 
like six repels or something at six or seven and had to like pound in our own pins and we had to like we replaced all these like manky tad anchors and um yeah it was kind of an ordeal to get down eventually they made it back to their camp completing the route in a 13-hour round trip they gorged on food and celebrated thinking now's a good time to rest but there was only one problem with that plan the weather was still perfect Secretly, I was hoping, like, maybe we'll get a rest day. Maybe we can just, like, fester around camp and, like, sleep in. And then Simon said, you know, like, it would be a damn shame to waste some good weather out here. And I just thought, like, shit, yeah, man, I guess you're right. So let's, let's climb a mountain tomorrow. And it just so happened that directly across from their camp was an unnamed, symmetrical 7,000-foot peak with a beautiful line waiting to be climbed. So the next morning we, we started out at, uh, we woke up again at 3 a.m. We're out of camp at like four and uh, we sunk our tools into the Bergschrund at like, right when the sun was casting this alpine glow across, you know, just painting the devil's thumb in this surreal light. And then Simon tied into the rope climbed out of the Bergschrund and we climbed more perfect, compact snow, ice, neve, some mixed sections of rock, slitting in stoppers and like plug-in cams where we could. And uh, we climbed the, I guess that'd be like the north face, like a, a steep, um, steep snow face, swinging leads up that and um, doing sections of climbing blocks. And then we hit the ridge from there, the duo unroped and climbed to the summit, where they were treated to unbelievable views once again. A few hours later, they were back at camp. The whole rest of the day, we were just basking. I mean, it was like beautiful weather, just very sunny, warm. And we just lounged around our, you know, our tiny little base camp on the glacier, just like staring at the devil's thumb and gazing into the witch's cauldron, just you know, being completely useless, just spending the whole day sitting around and just thinking like, you know, just just like soaking it all in and just thinking about how fortunate we were. And with that good fortune came continued good weather. So good, in fact, that August and Simon set their sights on another stunning and fabled peak in the region, Mount Burkett. They quickly made plans to move camp the next day and settled in for the night. The next morning, they headed out across the Stikine. It was one of those travel days where the train is very mellow and it's super easy going. And so I just got in, you know, in that headspace when, when you're moving out in the mountains and you just have nothing but time and space to like reflect and think and, and feel and take everything in. And so I, you know, of course, like was thinking a lot about Callie and, um, and I had this note that she had written me um, on my, my first trip into the Alaska range when I went with my buddy Corey Schmidt, um, she wrote, hey August, I love you, climb hard, climb smart, see you soon. Like such, such a simple message, but you know, with just the circumstances, like it was so deep and like so meaningful. And I, I like stopped and held that up to the devil's thumb and got a photo and just, 
you know, it like that, that was a big moment for me to like kind of rediscover like a deep calm in the, the cadence of, of my steps and the rhythm of my crampons, like cutting through snow and just letting myself feel all these things. But as the day progressed, the glacier travel became more contrived. And soon the duo found themselves in the middle of a treacherous icefall. You could hear, I mean, ice crack and seracs snap and, you know, rocks clatter and tumble into, into the guts of this, this really scary icefall. And, um, you know, and with, with Callie's accident only six months prior, like I, like, I think about death every fucking day. They tried to piece together a route, getting turned back on multiple occasions. Finally, they found a line that might get them through, but it would be dangerous, requiring a free-hanging rappel into the guts of a crevasse. And the rappel would have to be off a V-thread anchor, the same kind of anchor that failed six months before, causing Callie's death. Simon drilled the threads. He went first. Um, and he was really supportive of me during that, because that uh, that was pretty real for me. Um, that was the first V-thread that, that I have repelled off of since Callie died. And so when we were at the edge of the icefall, Simon, you know, he chopped through the ice. He, he drilled the thread, rigged ropes. And I just remember watching him lower just repel into this void and I watched that v-thread cinch tight and I just thought like fuck this is how Callie died and I just like those those last three words of her note see you soon those just those words were just hanging on me Simon finished the rappel and the ropes went slack August looked at the anchor clipped on his belay device and lowered out over the lip but instantly, he was thrown off balance by the weight of his pack. Swung into this big open chasm and tried to do, you know, tried to lift myself up with like 90 pounds of expedition shit on my back. I, I just couldn't. So I continued to lower down and I was eventually able to sink a tool and, and then I could like climb out of this crevasse and then like, you know, climb over an icy fin and then get back in, you know, in line and I could see Simon below and uh, he was I rappelled down to him he was hammering in these tiny beaks and like pounding stoppers into this little rock outcrop and I remember getting to him and that moment that we pulled the ropes it was like man we are we're in it now fully committed the team picked their way through the chasm finally they spotted some light through the snow an opening back to the glacier. We crawled out of this crevasse and just coiled ropes and we're so over it, just like so psyched to be through it. And, um, and then we had to do a final, like, it was probably like a final two, maybe like, yeah, maybe like mile and a half, two mile walk, but it felt like a walk of shame from the icefall to the base of uh, Mount Burkett to a, a lateral moraine where we were gonna set camp. Um, 
and we were so tired by that point. I mean, we had been moving in, that was four and a half days of, you know, going through the Witch's Cauldron Icefall, climbing the Devil's Thumb, climbing this unnamed peak, and now going through this shit. Like, we were so, we, we were worked. And so we uh, dropped packs, set camp, and then uh, the following day, we were able to just, like, wake up without an alarm. Weather was still perfect. Um, and we could just sit in camp and just like look at Mount Burkett and try and make a game plan. The team set their sights on a classic line called the Golden Gully. First climbed in 1980 by Dieter Close and Mike Biarzi, the Golden Gully was an aesthetic line up the west side of Mount Burkett. But when August and Simon reconned the line, the glacier access appeared to be disintegrated into a steep, exfoliated rock band with hanging seracs above. So they turned their attention to a new route with better access up the southeast face. So the next morning sought us off at like 3 or 4 a.m. Um, by headlamp in another ice fall, of course. You know, I, I thought we were done with it, but I guess not. Man, we, we probably got up like 2,000 or 2,500 feet before the sun was up. We climbed unroped for, for damn near all of it till we got up to um, like the upper flanks of Burkett when things really started to get steep um, and we were funneled into these couloirs. Uh, then, we, then we tied in and simul climbed for pretty much everything. Eventually we, we hit a choke point at the top of a couloir and that was probably the, the crux of the route. I would. We rated it at 80 degree water ice um, and 5'7 rock climbing. From there, we've wrapped around to the east face and that was when I could finally see the summit. You know, those moments where you can see the finish line and you just realize like, oh my God, this, this can happen. You know, like we are, we're here, I see it. We ended up, uh, you know, continued simul climbing, just climb, 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 place gear. When you run out, build an anchor, bring up the second, hand the rack over and just keep moving. And we just, we blitzed those final, it's probably uh, from the notch up to the summit, probably like another 1500 feet, mostly steep snow and some like 80 degree snow moderate rock climbing mixed moves with uh, pretty sparse rock pro. And I led the final block. It, it was a long one and I was definitely like kind of stretching the rack, placing gear. And it was one of those things where I like the summit was so, so close, so within my grasp. That was the moment when I really started to, to feel a lot of ways. I mean, like emotionally, thinking about Cali and it that's when it like really hit me like oh my god this is this is se September 17th this is six months to the very date that that Cali's heart stopped beating on the Valdez Glacier this is you know this is six months of big heavy dark feelings and loneliness and you know, six months of me just damning the mountains for stripping me of love and, and taking Callie's life. And I recalled Harry's message when, uh, you know, going back to the day after Callie died, when he told me that 
I need to let myself feel this. I need to be present and aware and I need to allow myself to be here. I felt like I had accepted that Callie is gone, but she's with me in a very different way. And, and I just recognized you know, all this grace and all this love that I still have for Callie as I sunk my tools into the summit of that satellite snow-capped peak. And that was such a, such a surreal moment. Those are moments that, that alpinists dream of and live for and having so much purpose and meaning and love wrapped up in that, that was such a special moment and I knew it. I recognized like how important that was, not just as my career as, you know, an alpinist, but as, you know, in my healing as a person and and in my love for Callie and in and where I am now with, with her and my life and how it's different and, you know, being very open and receptive to knowing that things are different and this is a new chapter in my life. And uh, realizing that on, on the summit was uh, pretty incredible. Since his time on the Stikine, August has continued to process his life, moving forward without Callie in the physical realm, but always keeping her in his heart. August plans to continue living in Valdez, climbing ice with his friends Ryan, Brian, and many more good people he surrounds himself with. Since losing Callie, August has continued to grow as a human being, to learn what it means to be alive, to be present, to feel. He's even started writing, trying to find a way to express what he feels and what he's learned along the way. Grief is not cured in a linear fashion, nor is it a simple problem to be solved. Grief is an experience lived and felt. It's a journey, an expedition if you will, with debilitating moments of pain and fear leaving you incapable of pulling yourself together as you dangle over the abyss of sorrow or over the void of a crevasse. It is not something that can be pulled through with a series of difficult moves like a boulder problem. Grief is truly an expedition of the heart that demands time, reflection, patience. As awful and gut-wrenching as grief can be, there remains beauty, a silver lining to be found if you know where to look. Just as the Stikine ice field is a place of turmoil, frustration, and tragedy, when storms lift, it's beautiful, even forgiving at times. You are granted the opportunity to witness a landscape, to witness a part of life and love that few humans truly experience. Mortality is confronted, priceless moments of friendship and adventure are recognized and valued. You are granted permission, freedom, to feel as you feel and to live as you live without any justification or explanation necessary. If grief and sorrow can knock you down and crush you so, the love you emulated must have been just as powerful. With grief, you hurt tremendously, but simultaneously you understand how powerful love is. 
In love, you will eventually lose a partner or friend and come to know grief. Love anyway. In climbing, you will experience challenging moments of gripping fear and doubt. You will suffer. Climb anyway. Trust me, they're both worth it. <laughs>